Merry Christmas, friends. So good to see you here today. Thankful that we can gather again and celebrate the arrival, the advent of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can uh, be joyful today. The Christian calendar really has uh, two particular days that uh, uh, demand joy, right? It's today and Easter Sunday, of course. But those are the days that uh, more than any other day on the Christian calendar, we celebrate all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so today is certainly a day of joy, of uh, celebration. Christmas is supposed to be about joy. Christianity doesn't work without joy. In fact, if you struggled through joyless Christianity, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't work without joy. Joyless Christianity really is an oxymoron, isn't it? Joyless Christianity dishonors God because he invented joy to be experienced by his people. And so it's necessary that we are a joyful people more than anyone else. Joyless Christianity turns out to be a burden. Joyless Christianity is unattractive. Uh, not too many people win their friends and neighbors to Christ when they say, hey, uh, I know this is miserable, but why don't you become a Christian? It, it just doesn't sound right. And no one's interested in that invitation. We should avoid joyless Christianity at all costs because it's, it's not Christianity. You may call it that, but it's certainly not that. Judaism in Jesus' day was anything but joyful. It had become a list of do's and don'ts, a burden to everyone who was trying to be a good Jew. Uh, Heavy-handed legalism was the experience of the day, and sadly, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were responsible for fostering that atmosphere. Unfortunately, Christianity can become joyless and legalistic very quickly as well. In today's passage, I want you to see Jesus clearly communicating the importance of joy in the Christian experience. I want you to see Jesus affirming that this is central to the Christian life, joy. And as he is affirming the centrality of joy to the Christian life, Jesus makes some jarring claims about the exclusivity of Christianity. And I'm anxious to see your faces respond to these things. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to read for you verses 18 through 22. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is to Jesus, why do John's disciples and uh, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away um, from it. 
the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, you may have read these verses, you know, often even. If you have a one-year Bible reading plan, you read these things annually. And you're probably quick to pass on from verses 21 and 22 and uh, not really sure what's going on there, what's being said, and happy to get to verse 23, right? Well, I want to, I want to speak to you concerning all these verses, 18 through 22, but I want you to see some very important things. My goal today is to help you see that God desires you and I to be joyful people. God doesn't want, isn't interested in Christians that look like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. That isn't of interest to God or to your neighbors. So I want you to see that, that God desires us to be joyful people. And, and if you determine you're not as joyful as you ought to be from what you hear this morning, to please make adjustments starting immediately. Right? So there was a book once written a while back called Happiness is a Choice. I'm here to tell you joy is a choice. Being joyful is a choice for every Christian. So let's begin. Let's dive into this short passage. And look, I have two, verse, two uh, points that I'm going to share with you. And they're in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, and I encourage you to do so. The first is this, gladness, not sadness. Gladness, not sadness. So starting back with forgiving the sins of the paralytic at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus had found himself in hot water. Do you remember? They asked, who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. So right off the bat in Jesus' ministry, he started making enemies. He started getting into hot water. And after that confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus chose Levi, a tax collector, an outcast, uh, to be his disciple. And of course, if that wasn't scandalous enough, he went a step further and befriended all the lowlifes in Capernaum. So he is mounting an opposition in his ministry. Uh, this caused no small uproar, of course, when he uh, chose Levi and ate with his friends. Uh, among the religious elite, there was quite an uproar because religious people weren't supposed to associate with those types. Not with the rabble, no. We're better than that, Jesus, is the communication he received. Now here in verse 18, it seems that Jesus is continuing on this trajectory. And we read a, an accusatory question. Why do you and your disciples not fast like the rest of us good people? Is the question. Now, most commentators believe that this question arose because of the feast that Jesus attended at Levi's house, right? Most commentators believe there was probably some uh, voluntary fast that was being offered, um, some way that Jesus could show that he was a holy person in agreement with the practices of the Pharisees. And so when he didn't, they were upset and they wanted to know why. So let me, let me explain to you why this was a problem to the people watching Jesus' fa uh, feast when others were evidently fasting. Old Testament law required one fast per year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. One fast per year was required. 
Three or four other times, God offered optional fasting days. Not required, just optional if you felt a, a need to get closer to God, a need to, to be a, a little more focused on, on your relationship with him, or a need to, to, to leave sin that may be causing you problems. So there was only one required fast, and the day that Levi offered his feast couldn't have been on that day. Because if it was commanded by God, Jesus always obeyed, right? He never sinned. He never disobeyed God's law. So if there was a fast on the day that Levi was celebrating, it wasn't a required fast. It was an optional fast. Maybe it was a Monday or a Thursday because those two days, the Pharisees added to the fast that they would fast every Monday and Thursday. And that particular, those particular fasts were actually about looking good to the masses. And so Levi's feast was probably here on an optional fasting day or Monday or Thursday and Jesus participated and it offended these people who were, of course, trying to put on a show of religion. And since Jesus was viewed as a religious teacher, uh, it would have been expected that he would have joined the Pharisees and their disciples in the habitual fast and encourage his followers to do the same. One of Jesus' problems, if, as you read through the Gospels, and this is the case in every single Gospel, was that he wouldn't fall in line with the religious leaders. He, he refused to do it. He, in fact, rejected traditions and expectations uh, in order to actually serve God and, and fulfill God's uh, expectations. Whatever the case, Jesus received this vindictive question here in verse 18, and his response was brilliant. And I'm going to explain his response to you now because of what we learn from his response. Jesus, if, you, if you'll notice this, he does this regularly in the Gospels. He teaches by asking questions. He does this a lot. Good teachers do that kind of thing. They want you to pursue the answer in your own brain and come to a solution through thinking. And so Jesus is a good teacher and he used this very same technique. He answers their question with a question. Look what he says here in verse 19. Can the wedding guest, after asking why don't you fast, he goes, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? That would require some thinking on the part of the people who were listening to him. And so he taught by a question. He answered a critical question by asking one of his own. And Jesus' question not only answered their question, but great, gave great insight into the heart of God for his people. Look at his answer. It is astounding. God wants his people to be joyful. Let me say it a little more personally. God wants you to be joyful. He wants us celebrating life, especially redeemed life. Are you redeemed? You, of all people, should be rejoicing, should be joyful. He wants us celebrating all that Jesus is and all that he provides for us. So God is committed to our joy, so much so that he actually has to command it because he knows we won't. You've seen these commands all throughout the Psalms, particularly we see it in the New Testament in Philippians, right? The epistle of joy. Philippians 4.4 says what? You know it by heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice in case you miss it the first time. Rejoice in the Lord. 
God had to command us to be joyful because our default is to not be joyful. To, to get stuck in the mud, to, to think everything is in the negative, to, to consider all the bad things that are going on instead of all the good things that are going on because of Christ. And so verse 19 really is a command to celebrate. Why? Because Jesus was speaking about himself as the bridegroom. When the bridegroom is present, do you expect the guest to not celebrate? Of course not. That would be offensive, Jesus is saying. Of course that's not the case. His answer, Jesus' answer, clearly communicated that his presence ought to bring joy to his people. Whenever God is present, the experience of the redeemed is joy. So joy flows out of Jesus to his followers like water would flow out of a spring. So wherever Jesus is, joy is. It just kind of bubbles out of him. And we see pictures of this in the Gospels. Look at John 4:14. 4, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, as you read through the New Testament with this joy perspective, all of a sudden you see it everywhere in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples. In Acts 13, 52, this is very interesting. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. If God is present, there is joy. Look at what it says in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. If the Holy Spirit is in you, if the Holy Spirit is present, what do you experience? Joy. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 19. Jesus came to earth to bring divine joy into our experience. You need a little divine joy in your life? Get close to Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. One of my favorite Christmas carols, isn't it? Joy to the world, you know, and off we go. And, that's, and it's just so, you know, repetitive, we lose the point. But Jesus is saying, don't lose the point. I came that you might have joy. Look at Luke 2.10. This was on the overhead before the service began. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When Jesus shows up, joy comes with him. And then John 15.11, Jesus said this to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. That's divine joy might be in you and that your joy would be full. Overflowing is the idea of that word. So Jesus, we can say this without a doubt, Jesus and joy go together. If you have Jesus, you ought to have joy. A joyless Christian is missing the point. If you have Jesus but don't have joy, you either don't have Jesus or you don't understand Jesus. One of the two. So what are the things that bring joy with the arrival of Jesus? Well. He became one of us 2,000 years ago to bring us joy. So joy because we learn that God loves us in his arrival. Because God so loved the world. This is how God loves the world. He sent his son. Right? So with the arrival of God, we experience joy. Joy because in his arrival, he forgives sins. He says in verse 5 of chapter 2, My son, your sins are forgiven. 
When God shows up, joy comes because he forgives sins. Like handing out candy. He forgives sins. Sinner, you're forgiven. Sinner, you're forgiven. This is good news, isn't it? It makes you happy just hearing it. Joy because he has made a, a way for us sinful people to be reconciled, brought together with a holy, just God. That's good news. That's joy-inducing news. He did this through his life, death, and resurrection. Joy because he has reserved a place for us in heaven. John 14. For all these reasons, the presence of Jesus brings joy. Now, the arrival of the Messiah in the first century should have been a time of great celebration in Israel. They had waited for centuries for this very thing to happen, and yet, when he shows up, instead of celebrating, the leaders spent their time and effort trying to undermine him, trying to discredit him, trying to keep other people from following him. Their pride, their jealousy clouded their vision to the point where they couldn't see Jesus for who he clearly was who he claimed to be. Their only focus was on getting rid of him because he didn't fit their narrow view of religion and this is how it's got to be, no smiles whatsoever. That's what was going down here in this conversation that I just read for you. Jesus' example of celebrating wedding guests in verse 19 helps us understand some important things. Listen to them. The first is this. Jesus is the bridegroom. He wasn't, he wasn't just talking theoretically. He was talking reality. I am the bridegroom. I am here. The wedding guests aren't going to fast. We're going to celebrate. Secondly, Jesus' friends were the wedding guests. Jesus' friends were the wedding guests. Now listen to this. Even in rabbinical law, that is, Jewish law established by the rabbis says the following. <clears throat> All attendees, this is not scripture, this is rabbinical law, okay? There's scripture, then there's rabbinical law that was added to, added to Jewish practices in the Old Testament. All attendees of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. How do you like that? That was what the rabbis decided to put into the rabbinical law centuries before Jesus showed up. So Jesus was simply saying, your own law says when there's a wedding, we ought to celebrate and not mourn, not fast. So Jewish law allowed wedding guests to skip fasts. When, when the bridegroom was present, everyone was to celebrate. If you didn't celebrate, it was offensive. Jesus shows up as a baby. What ought we to do? Celebrate. Be joyful. Third thing I think we see here in verse 19 that Jesus makes clear is that the New Testament shows us that the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. Have you heard that before? The bride of Christ is another name for the church. Jesus is referring to that here. He is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Our joyful celebration is critically important. We're not just wedding guests, friends. We are the bride. Brides are the most joyful people at the wedding, right? At least they're supposed to be. 
If you go to a wedding and the bride's not happy, something's wrong. It's okay for the groom to be a little bit off, but the bride, no. Not happening. And so let's bring this into the spiritual arena. When you come to faith, you are added to the church in a real spiritual sense, right? Not like church membership where if you come in the door here, you could sign a piece of paper and make some commitments and be part of the physical membership of this church. We're talking about, I'm talking about spiritual membership in the body of Christ. When you come to Christ authentically, you join the church as the bride of Christ. And the New Testament speaks of this marriage supper of the Lamb where, in a formal way, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church, will be united forever and ever. Revelation speaks of that. And so this is the picture that Jesus is painting for these people asking questions. This is what the the apostle Mark here wants us to understand. Mark wasn't an apostle. Mark, the writer of this, this gospel, wanted us to understand. As members of the bride of Christ, we are supposed to be joyful people, celebrating all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. He came to bring joy. The joy that Jesus brings, of course, comes from many places, from the Savior that we rejoice over and celebrate, our salvation that comes with our Savior. Rejoice in all of God's good gifts that he gives to the wedding guests, that he gives to his bride. Marriage, family, health, vocation, church, friendship, health, etc. Breathing air this morning, sitting in a warm auditorium instead of not. These are good gifts that God intends us to enjoy. Are you a joyful Christian? How, if you had to examine your own heart, your own view of things, would you say, I am a joyful Christian? Or would you fit into the Pharisee category, always looking for something negative, always seeing something negative, always pointing something negative out? When Jesus came, with Jesus comes joy to his people. And so as we gather here, not just on Christmas Sunday morning, but week after week, we have the opportunity and obligation to set those things aside that may rob us of our joy. All the concerns of life, all the the cares that mount throughout every single week, Set them aside so that we can celebrate with a full and joyful heart all that Jesus is for us. We should make sure that we come every Sunday morning primed to be joyful, primed for celebration. And so there should be never an occasion where the song leader should say, I can't hear you. We should come primed, juiced, waiting for an opportunity to shout out our joy in song form, in prayer form. And so as we come together, we should look for reasons to celebrate. God required Israel to gather throughout the year numerous times, required numerous times for feasts. He required one fast of all of Israel and at least seven celebrations. Does that tell anything to you? Does that 
communicate to you at all what God wants from us, where we, be should, we should be spending our time and efforts on joy, not, not sorrow, not fasting. But did Jesus, did Jesus dismiss fasting here in these verses? No. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Jesus didn't view fasting as the problem at all. Not at all. He, he affirmed fasting. He, he said that when he would be taken away, that his disciples would fast at that point. This was, of course, Jesus' first reference to his crucifixion. He knew that he was going to be taken away, was going to be, you know, crucified. When that happened, Jesus said, of course, my followers will fast and pray and mourn. And how long was he gone? Remind me, someone. Three days. They had three days to mourn and fast and get it over with. Then, what, did the, what was the expectation? And I read it for you from Acts. And the disciples rejoiced because they were full of the Holy Spirit. They had three days to fast and to mumble around. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, the celebration resumed. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, the time that, that Jesus was referring to fasting in verse 20 was really a, a short window in the history of the church. I don't want you to hear me saying fasting is wrong and we shouldn't do it. There are many good occasions to fast when you're seeking the Lord's will when you're seeking a more repentant heart, when you're seeking a blessing from God or, or direction for your children or whatever, there are good reasons to fast. But the life of the Christian should be marked by joy, not fasting. I hope you hear that. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Originally, when fasts were first instituted, they had nothing to do with diets as they do today. Fasting was instituted by God for the people to set aside food for a moment so they could focus on spiritual things, a deepening walk with God, for example. And so it's been used by people for centuries to, to make their relationship with God more substantial, to focus on repentance that wouldn't otherwise be focused on, to get direction from God for spiritual matters or specific matters. And so it's been a long practice of believers to fast. Now, as we read through the Bible, starting in Genesis, every once in a while you see a fast cropping up from a different biblical character, don't you? They're fasting for this reason or for that reason or whatever, and they're all good reasons for the most part. And since the early history of God's people, when Israel became a nation, fasting was practiced. And as time passed, I'm trying to get you up to speed here, as time passed, uh, the hearts of the people became more and more hardened and particularly the hearts of the leaders of the people became more and more hardened, to the point where the Pharisees became notorious for making a show out of fasting that's for something that should have been spiritual actually became heart-hardening, if you can believe it. But that's what was going on here, and that's what Jesus recognized immediately, and that's what he was addressing. For example, Pharisees wanted to make sure everybody knew they were fasting. And so Jesus said, the Pharisees, they draw in their cheeks. 
You know, I'm, I'm starving. I haven't been eating for six hours. You know, it's the kind of thing that was going on. They, they would wear yesterday's clothes. They wouldn't bathe. Uh, I haven't had time. I'm so holy. This was what was going on. They, they would make sure everybody knew that they were holy people because they were fasting. Jesus wasn't the first to condemn that kind of behavior. He did condemn it, which we're studying today. But the Old Testament prophets condemned it as far back as Isaiah. 700 years before Christ showed up, listen to what Isaiah writes about fasting. Contemporary fasting in his day. And this is a question that's being asked by the people to God through Isaiah. Why have we fasted, God, and you see it not? How can we not paying attention to my holy fast, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God answers. Listen to God's answer through Isaiah. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fists. Picture it. <laughs> Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Surprise. <laughs> totally wrong motives for fasting. Jesus comes and they ask him, hey, why aren't you doing this most holy thing? And he says, because it's wrong. <laughs> That's why. Fasting is not the focus in the New Testament, nor the focus of this passage, nor the focus of the Christian life. If there is a focus of the Christian life, if there is a focus of the New Testament, it's the same focus as this passage. When Jesus shows up, celebrating begins. As Christians, we ought to be joyful people. The fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. Second point that I want to show you here, now we're going to look specifically at verse 21 and 22. And this is the jolting part of this. I mean, maybe it's jolting enough for you to hear that we're supposed to be happy. I don't know. I think most of you are generally joyful people, but maybe there's one or two that need to hear this as clear as I've tried to communicate it. Be happy. Okay? But listen to this. This will probably shake up a few more of you. Completely new, not patching the old. Look at verse 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Why does new wine explode old wineskins? Because in the fermenting process, it swells. And when it swells, if it's an old, dried-out wineskin, it bursts the wineskin and ruins the wine and the wineskin. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, what does he mean? <laughs> Let's, let's start at the beginning. Jesus and his gospel of forgiveness by way of repentance and grace granted to anybody who would come to God in pleading his mercy was rejected by the religious authority of Jesus' day. That's not how you get close to God. 
You need to perform. You need to be at the fast. You need to give of the tithe. You need to stay in line or you're not right with God. Okay? So they rejected Jesus' presentation of the gospel. Jesus' example and picture of and offer of a relationship with God. They rejected it wholesale. They were committed to self-righteousness and legalism, and this offer of free grace was offensive to them. So in these two short parables in 21 and 22 about unshrunk cloth and wineskins, Jesus communicated that his gospel would not fit into or synchronize with present-day Judaism. Do you hear it? Do you see it? Do you see how that works? You wouldn't be able to take a new patch of Jesus Christ and sew it onto the old Judaism without causing greater problems. Jesus says these two things we cannot sink. You couldn't take a new wine of Jesus and his gospel and synchronize it, synchronize it with the old wineskin of Judaism or any other religion. Pay attention, Sun Valley, or any other religion in our day. It doesn't work. You cannot take Christianity, cannot take Jesus, and patch it on to Mormonism. No. You cannot take Jesus and patch it on to any religion. Fill in the blank. No. New wine doesn't work with old wineskins. New patches make old clothes worse, not better. That's what Jesus is saying here. The incompatibility rather, of Christianity is in view. You've heard the term synchronism comes from sinking or sink. It's the attempted reconciliation or union of different or opposing principles and practices in religion. Let's synchronize all these different religions and just get along. Stop claiming exclusive information. Stop claiming exclusive access to God. Stop claiming exclusive entrance into heaven. Let's just synchronize these things and get along. How hard is that? Stop being so arrogant, you Christians. We hear that, don't we? Yeah. Jesus was saying here in these two parables to the Jews and to us today, that never works. It doesn't work. The idea, listen, of exclusivity usually rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? We kind of react negatively when we hear things like the exclusive club, unless of course we belong to that club, then we're not offended, right? We, we judge those who believe that they have exclusive rights to anything, the world violently reacts to any religion that claims exclusive access to God, to truth, or to heaven. And as Christians, we claim that there's only one God, and he so happens to be ours. Right? We say that we, we have one God, and that there is only one way to this God, only one way to heaven, and that is God's Son, Jesus Christ, and no other. The exclusive claims are not well received by the world. In fact, the world hates us because we claim these things. They recoil against them. The world would much prefer we allow space in our belief system for everyone who is simply sincere 
if they're sincerely practicing their belief system, why don't you just leave them alone and keep your opinions to yourself? Right? So, Christians, are we to deal with the exclusive claims of Jesus other or differently than Jesus did here in this important passage? Should we just tone it down for the sake of peace and allow people to believe whatever they want and wish them good luck in the next life? Are we to dismiss the claims of Jesus and the apostles, and by the way, all the apostles, and chalk those views up to unrefined and narrow-mindedness that marked a bygone era? Well, those people like to fight. You know, let's just not be like them. Well, as always, Sun Valley Church, we want to stick to Scripture. If we go outside the boundaries of Scripture, what do we have? Opinion? That's a bad place to be when you're talking about things of this importance. So we go to Scripture, right? We see in Scripture that Jesus claimed to be God. That's why these four Gospels were written, recording the claims of Christ to his deity, especially the Gospel of John, right? And then we find in these same Gospels Jesus' claim to be the only access to God, the only way to heaven, and the only one who can forgive sins. Each New Testament writer repeated these same claims. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to claim Christianity, these claims must be our claims. If they're not, we're not following Jesus. As Hard as that may sound to people that disagree with our belief system, as much as they would ridicule, reject us, and scorn us, this is what the Bible teaches. And we are either biblical Christians or we're not Christians. Jesus' parables of patching a garment and filling a wineskin are meant to communicate the same thing. Here And here it is, in case you're wondering, in case you haven't heard it yet. Following Jesus is not like any other religion. It's incompatible. Listen, I'll just read Jesus' words for you. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know that may sound arrogant, but it's God speaking. Next, from the Apostle Peter, the leader of the apostles, in his sermon in Acts chapter 4. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, this is the opinion and record of every single New Testament author. This obviously includes a rejection of Judaism. 
Now put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew, maybe even worse, a first century Jewish leader. How would you respond to this information from Jesus? Stone him, is what you would say. And later on, like two and a half years later, you'd say, let's crucify this guy. So we're not surprised at the reaction of the Jews, are we? Not at all. See, Judaism was based on the old covenant with Moses. The, the legalism of Moses. Jesus came to initiate a new covenant. He says in Matthew, a new covenant that's written in my blood. You see, you just can't sow Christianity and Jesus as a patch onto Judaism and make it work. You can't take Jesus and Christianity and patch any religion and make it work. Jesus is saying that's impossible. In the same way, it applies to us in our own lives. You, you just can't take Jesus and sink him with the rest of your life. When Jesus answered the question, Judaism had become so rigid, so ritualistic, it didn't reflect the God whom they thought they were worshiping. It was a joyless God. And that's impossible. If anything, God is happy. Their religion, that is Judaism, had become boring, sad, burdensome, and legalistic. And instead of rejoicing in God and his goodness, they were in a state of constant mourning. And so when Jesus arrived on the scene and was preaching good news, forgiveness of sins, divine grace, they didn't even recognize it. He preached repentance. They were committed to external ceremony. He preached humility before God. They were proud of their religious accomplishments. He preached a transformed heart. They were all about the applause of men. Jesus preached the passionate heart of God for his people, and they were comfortable in their dead, orthodox, separate view of God. Christianity isn't just another way to God, friends. Jesus is saying Christianity is the only way to God. Jesus is, is proclaiming exclusivity. Now, I said this here a second ago, and I want to emphasize it now, the priority of Christianity in our lives. Can we just take Jesus, and maybe even Christianity, and use that as a patch to make our life a little bit better, to solve some of our problems, or not? Oh, Jesus seems to be saying that he isn't interested in being an addition to any religion or any life, especially yours. That's not okay with Jesus. I'm not going to be a patch, Jesus is saying. I'm not interested in coming along and making it work out better for you. This means that Christianity cannot be just an addition to your life. Jesus can't be an add-on. 2 Corinthians 5.17, 
if you wanted to take one verse out of an entire New Testament that speaks of this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. Old and new, old and new, old and new, all over the epistles. Friends, Jesus is everything or he's nothing. He is not going to be your patch. And if you're trying to use him that way, let me warn you, as Jesus would, that ain't going to work out well for you at all. Now or in the future. He is not a patch. He will be the source of eternal joy and satisfying joy, or he will make your life as confusing as it possibly can get if he's to be used as a patch. If you try to use Jesus as a patch in your life, you will end up with a life that is a tattered mess and joyless. And, let me say, confusing to anybody in your life, starting with your kids. It's all or nothing in Jesus' view of things. Friends, and I want to encourage you with my whole heart to make Jesus all and just stand back and watch the joy build. Stand back and watch God grab hold of your heart and transform you at the deepest levels of your being. You will see joy in places you would never have imagined. Joy in hardship. <laughs> joy in loss. Joy in brokenness and ruined things. That comes with making Jesus all. Friends, this coming year, we're not too far away from the coming year. We have one more Sunday. This coming year, let's make Jesus all. And just see. Jesus, God said to the Israelites, test me in this. See if it works out. So let me say this for Christ to you. Test me in this. Let's see if it works out. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we obviously need a spiritual tune-up. Maybe beyond the tune-up, we need a total engine change. It's, it's so easy to drift uh, as even a Christian into this um, seeing Jesus as a patch or an addition to my life instead of my life. Lord, we confess to you that that happens to us and we ask for your forgiveness of it. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the love of your Son, Jesus Christ, and your own love for us, that you would save us from that perspective, that you would rescue us from that unsatisfying 
joyless conclusion. Lord Jesus, come afresh to us this Christmas season. Renew in us a, a, a passion for making you everything, for setting aside all these personal desires, these things that we want to keep and treasure over you. Help us set them all aside, replace them completely with you, the new. Help us put aside the old completely. Lord Jesus, bless us now as we come to you, believing you, embracing you as our all. And we pray this in your name. Amen.